Hi, ladies. Welcome to Women in the Word. I'm Shelley Davis. I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team, and I love Women in the Word. I love being here with so many women that are just captivated by the Word of God. So thank you for being here with us today. You know, most of us recognize that however we view someone, whatever our experience with them has been, um, that colors our relationship with them in lots of ways. In other words, we view the people around us through the lens of what we think about them or maybe how we feel about them. And my family has a great example of this. Uh, my youngest son, the youngest of our three boys, is actually a military pilot. He has lots and lots of combat experience. Um, and he has a job right now with the Special Operations Command that is so secret, he can't even tell us what he does every day. In fact, yesterday was his birthday, and he is somewhere in the world that his wife and kids and his parents can't know. So none of us could really wish him a happy birthday. But you know what happens when he comes home? When he comes home, he's simply the baby of the family. That's who he is in our minds, and that's how we treat him. You know, um, it, it, we all vie for his attention, like you do with the baby of the family. Aren't they cute? They're so uh, awesome. We all spoil him a little bit, because that's what you do with the baby of the family. And his two big brothers boss him around unmercifully. Unmercifully. They tell him what to do constantly. Um, now, he never paid much attention to them back years ago, and he still doesn't. But it's totally hard for us to remember that this isn't just who he is, our baby that we treat like the pet of the family. Uh, he really does have others in the world that literally trust him with their lives, uh, although none of us would, probably. <laughs> You know, these next four chapters in Numbers remind us that sometimes we don't view God correctly either. Um, and certainly we see throughout um, this great book of Numbers uh, that the Israelites struggle to see who God really is and then respond to him the way he deserves to be responded to. You know, their God is not like the pagan gods that they left behind in Egypt. He's not like the pagan gods they're gonna encounter in the promised land. He doesn't, he wasn't carved by human hands. He doesn't have human limitation. He is El Shaddai. El Shaddai, which in Hebrew means God Almighty. And actually, that's how he first introduced himself to Abraham when he was calling him into a covenant relationship with him. Look at Genesis 17.1 on your verse sheet with me. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. God refers to himself as El Shaddai. That is the name he wants to go by. And the name El Shaddai or God Almighty speaks to God's ultimate power over all things. You know, the scriptures actually tell us so much about who God is, and the scriptures tell us that he's the creator of all things, the builder of all things, um, the king of heaven, the one true God, the eternal God, 
the God of all mankind, the God who holds all the universe together, and the God who does immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. And those are just a few things that describe El Shaddai. You know, El Shaddai, God Almighty, answers to no one, and no one can alter change or thwart his plans. Look at Psalm 115.3 with me. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And Psalm 33.11 says, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. So with the true view of El Shaddai or God Almighty in mind, We're going to look at numbers together today, and we're going to see his almighty power at work in the nation of Israel as he trains the next generation to enter the promised land. Now, if you were here last week, you remember that we were with Misty, and we saw the people of Israel rebel when they refused to listen to the report from Joshua and Caleb, who told the whole nation of Israel that God was going to take them into the promised land because their God had already given it to them. And God punished them because they refused to believe Joshua and Caleb that he is God Almighty, that he can take them safely anywhere he wants them to go. Their punishment is that only their children are going to enter the promised land. All of the um, adults over the age of 20 will die in the wilderness. So with that in mind, um, and with that view of God as God Almighty, let's look at chapter 15 together, starting in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land you are to inhabit, which I am giving you, and you offer to the Lord from the herd or from the flock a food offering or a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering or at your appointed feast to make a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now we're going to stop right there because this goes on to be the longest sentence in the entire Old Testament, I believe, speaking uh, about the many sacrifices that he wants to instruct them in. But what I want you to notice here is what he says in verses 1 and 2. He's starting over with the next generation here. You know, in chapter 14, he said only the next generation is going in. So here he begins in chapter 15 with his version of children's ministry. Um, He's telling Moses to assure these young people that they are going to inhabit the land. They're going to see the parents around them die in the wilderness. They might begin to think, are we going to die in the wilderness too? No, God is telling them, you are going into the land because I am giving it to you and will take you there. Now, most of chapter 15 is God's instructions for the younger generation because what he is doing here with all of these sacrifices that we read only a portion of, those under 20 that will eventually possess the land. He's giving them requirements for their covenant relationship with them. It's a tutorial for them in these offerings that are going to be presented to honor this powerful and gracious God who loves them 
and cares for them and is going to take them in to possess the land. Now, these are offerings are really similar to the gifts that a vassal people would give their king. That's what it reminds you of when you read this. And here in chapter 15, God describes those offerings there. If we categorized them, I actually had a chart of these, which is way too much information for all of us. Um, they would be fellowship offerings, offerings of praise and thanksgiving, Offerings from the first fruits of the harvest and offering for sins of omission. Now, if you go back and read Leviticus, a lot of the offerings in Leviticus are for sins of commission, things that are done willfully. But here in chapter 15, we see God instructs the young people in how to atone for those uh, things for, that they simply forgot to take care of, which if you have young people in your house, you know there are a lot of things they forget to take care of. Now the exception to this sins of omission is when God gives instructions for someone to be cut off from the entire nation of Israel by death for not observing the Sabbath. So drop your eyes down to verse 32 with me in chapter 15. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And then look at verse 35. And the Lord said to Moses, the man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside of the camp. Um, now, we live in a day of grace, don't we, in the New Testament church, and nobody even questions us if we're out mowing our yard on a Sunday morning, are they? Certainly, we don't have any punishment if we've decided to stay home and miss church on a Sunday. But we have to keep this in context uh, with God leading and teaching his people day in and day out in holiness. In holiness and how to follow his instructions completely. Anyone guilty of breaking the particular command to observe the Sabbath, we have to remember is essentially openly defying El Shaddai. It's a direct challenge to his authority. And one theologian that I read when speaking of this called it an arrogant act of insubordination. To not observe the laws of the Sabbath was the ultimate affront to God Almighty, and it deserved the ultimate punishment. Now, God finishes his lessons here for the next generation by showing them how very well he knows their hearts. Look at verse 37 with me. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are so inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. You know, God gives us a fashion statement here. Tassels are, uh, this is the only thing I own with a tassel on it. So um, I had to put it on today. You know, God is uh, everything according to the scriptures. And here he's really regulating their fashion statements, but for a very good purpose. It shows that he recognizes that his people need constant reminder. Constant reminders to help them remember his command 
and help them remember his authority in their lives. When they're walking through their day and they see that tassel, they can remember who they belong to. God Almighty, El Shaddai is their God and their authority in um, their lives. In fact, he reminds them here that he's the God that brought them up out of Egypt. Nobody else did that in their lives. They didn't do it by their own wisdom or cunning or military strength or one of the pagan gods. God Almighty brought them up out of Egypt. And these tassels that he has them put on their garments are a visual aid that they will take with them every minute of the day. Now, we don't have much of a description here of tassels. I looked up some pictures of ancient clothing, and it appears that they were probably about six inches long, and they were certainly attached to the upper outer garment that the Israelites wore. Um, And they would not only be visible to the Israelites, but they would also allow the world around them to see these tassels and perhaps to inquire what these tassels were all about. They also had a blue thread. Now, some of the things I read said the blue thread attached the tassel to the upper garment. Some said the blue threads were woven in the tassels um, in a design. But the blue thread had a purpose. The blue thread reminded them that they were nobility. They were nobility. It would remind the Israelites that God had chosen them as royalty out of all the world. They had a noble calling by the one true God. And their purpose was not to remind the Israelites of a specific command, um, like uh, prayer beads sometimes do, but they were to remind them of all of God's commands that they should walk in daily, not just picking out one, but walk in all of God's commands. Because God's goal here was obedience, obedience to his authority in their life, something that the people of Israel we see certainly struggle with, don't they? Now, these tassels were also the origin of um, the fringe on modern-day prayer shawls. I had the opportunity to be in, uh, at the Wailing Wall in Israel last summer, and all of the observant modern-day Jews had on their prayer shawls. They're white with blue stripes running through them. They have fringe or small tassels along the edge, and they would put them over their heads uh, during their prayer time. And so these tassels right here in numbers are the origin of that. And the other interesting thing I read, is that it's also right here in Numbers, the origin of the color blue on the Israeli flag today came from uh, Numbers 15. You know, what I like about chapter 15 is that it starts out by reminding us that God is God Almighty. He is El Shaddai. He is going to be the one that takes his people into the land that he promised them. And it ends up by reminding them, um, giving them a visual reminder to obey him because he is God Almighty. He's the one that brought them out of Israel. So he bookends this chapter with, I'm the one that's got you out of that terrible land you were in, and I'm the one that's going to take you into the land where you're going. I will accomplish my plans for you. You know, if we were to take a lesson out of chapter 15 today, I think it's the exact same one he's trying to teach the Israelites here. Um, 
He is El Shaddai in our lives as well. He is God Almighty every single day that we should place ourselves under that authority. He's a powerful and faithful God who will accomplish his plans for us. And you know, day by day, it may seem like we're rambling through life, but day by day, when we place ourselves under his authority, we can know he will accomplish his plans for us and take us wherever he wants us to go as well. Our responsibility is to remember who he is, to never forget that he's God Almighty, the powerful creator of heaven and earth, the builder of everything, the king of heaven, the maker of all things that will do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. And when we remember who he is, that's always the first step, ladies. Remember who God is. The next step is to walk obediently under his authority. Look at Psalm 103, verse 2 on your verse sheet. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. First we recognize who he is, then we remember that he is going to accomplish his plans for us. Okay, let's read a little bit more. Look at chapter 16 with me, verse 1. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and on the sons of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, uh, well-known men. They assembled themselves against Moses, against Aaron, and said to them, you have gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? And when Moses heard it, he fell on his face, and he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show you who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses he will bring near to him. Do this. Take fire. Uh, take censers, Korah and his company, put fire in them, put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the Holy One. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. And then drop your eyes down to verse 11. It says, therefore, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. Okay, so here we go again. Just when we think that the Israelites uh, have learned their lesson, we see them go back around again into rebellion. You know, Korah is actually a relative of Moses and Aaron from the tribe of Levi and uh, Kohath. And uh, Dathan and Abiram are Reubenites. And they recruit, they actually uh, somehow gather up these very important, it tells us these are important men in the nation of Israel, 250 leaders from all the other tribes. So the um, Levites uh, and the Reubenites start this out, and then they spread it to all the tribes uh, of Israel. And the, their point is to challenge the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Their plan is to overthrow um, the leadership that God has already established through Moses and Aaron and replace it 
with something they think they deserve. And that's always how rebellions start, isn't it? They, you think you deserve something. Uh, look at Exodus 19 on your verse sheet. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall take me to be a kingdom of priests and a holy, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now, God spoke these words in Exodus 19 to Moses on Mount Sinai before the nation of Israel rebelled to him. Um, and worship the golden calf. Um, And these rebels take these words here. You see them again in verse 3 when they say, um, all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. They've taken that thought from these words that God spoke on Mount Sinai in Exodus uh, 19. They've taken those words uh, as part of their plan to overthrow God's leaders. But there are a few things they're forgetting, aren't they? They're forgetting, even as they pull out God's very own words to support their plan, they're forgetting that it was God himself who called Moses to lead the nation of Israel out of Egypt. He did it from a burning bush. We read that together um, a few semesters ago when we studied Exodus. It's in Exodus chapter 3. You can go read that later and refresh yourself. They're also forgetting that God Almighty anointed Aaron as his high priest. Look at Exodus 28.1. Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him and from them among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And then in Exodus 29.9, God says this, and the priesthood should be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons a statute forever. Now, Korah and his cohorts overlook the truth that they're not living in a democracy where they get to vote their leaders in. Israel is obviously a theocracy under the authority of a gracious, kind, merciful, generous God who chooses his own leaders. Look at the wisdom of Proverbs, Proverbs 19. This is great insight Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Any challenge to Moses and Aaron's um, leadership is truly a challenge to the God of all the universe. Moses does not defend himself here because I think Moses knows, yikes, this is a challenge to God, and he simply falls on his face knowing that God will defend himself against the rebels, and that's exactly what he does because he directs Moses to assemble these 250 men um, the next day at the tabernacle, and he tells them to bring censers filled with fire and incense. Now, that should have given these guys a clue that this was not going to end well, because they all know what happened to Aaron's two sons, um, Abihu and Nadab, when they took their censers and offered fire uh, before the Lord against the Lord's commands. We read that together um, when we studied the tabernacle. God burned up uh, Aaron's two sons when they tried to offer um, unauthorized incense and fire before the Lord. So Moses um, makes it clear 
that when they bring their censors, God himself will choose his leaders um, and he will choose who is holy. Now, I wonder if Moses, don't you wonder if Moses ever wants to just stand up and say to everyone that continually challenges his leadership, I didn't want this job in the first place. I mean, over and over again, they say, oh, Moses. And if you go back and read Exodus chapter 3, how many times did he try to turn God down? And God would not let him. God has chosen Moses. Uh, So, yeah, if it was me, I'd be saying, I didn't even want this job. Um, You know, and we see Moses' true leadership here. You see the wisdom in God choosing Moses because he was a humble man that didn't scramble to be the leader of this nation. And he's also a humble man here that even in light of the um, challenge by the Reubenites, Dathan and Abiram, we see here in chapter 16 that he reaches out to Dathan and Abiram and wants to meet with him. And that is the mark of a great leader that even in light of a personal challenge, he wants to do the very best thing for his people. He would, um, I think, like to see nothing more than to be able to talk reason into these Reubenites and have them step away from Korah and leave this challenge. But... um, These are not spiritual men. Dathan and Abiram are not spiritual men. Drop your eyes down to verse 13 in chapter 16. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness that you must also make yourself a prince over us? Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards, Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. David and Abiram even refuse Moses' attempt to talk some sense of them. You know, it's, it's, it was almost painful to read these baseless accusations against Moses from these jealous, ignorant um, men. But God steps in the next day and defends Moses in a dramatic way. Um, Moses, Aaron, Dathan, Abiram, 250 other chiefs from various tribes of Israel all assemble at the opening to the tabernacle with incense in their censors. And Korah, it says, has actually assembled the whole congregation to come and watch. And I think that speaks of his pride because he obviously thinks that he's going to end the day being the leader of the entire congregation. It's a great example of his selfishness and his pride. But look how God responds to Korah's selfishness and pride. Look at verse 20. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, separate yourself from this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces and said, oh God, the God of the spirits of all flesh shall one man sin and will you be angry with the congregation? And the Lord spoke to Moses, say to the congregation, get away from the dwellings of Korah, Dathan and Abiram. Moses and Aaron are um, definitely the spiritual men that God knew they would be when he picked them to be leaders. They are true leaders that have compassion even for these people that continue to rebel against him. And God hears their intercession and he does spare the congregation that 
whole um, group of Israelites from punishment. Um, and the reason Aaron and Moses give him this time, um, in chapter 14, it was to make sure that, his, that God's name was not uh, spoken of unkindly. Here, it's because the sin is of these men. So punish these men alone. God does show mercy. He allows them to warn the people. They move away from the tents. Look at verse 26 with me. And he spoke to the congregation, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away from all their sin, with all their sins. So they got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents with their wives and sons and little ones. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down to live into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord." And that's exactly what happens. If we were to read on, we would see that the earth does open up exactly like Moses describes it here. It swallows up Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and all of their families, their wives, their children, their tents, their animals, everything that was with them. These are dramatic events that tell the story of God Almighty. Tells the story of God Almighty. He alone chooses his leaders and he buries those who openly and willingly dispute his authority to do so. These men were never usurping Moses and Aaron's authority. They were usurping the authority of the creator of heaven and earth, the king of heaven, the maker of all things. And his response to their rebellion leaves no room to doubt that these men did despise him. God knew their heart. He knew the depth of their depravity they never accepted his authority in their lives, even though he is El Shaddai. And in God's economy, unrepentant sin always leads to death. Look at Romans 6.23 on your verse sheet. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. When we openly despise our God, it is a sin um, that leads to death. And these guys are a great example of that. Now, when Moses used the words Sheol here, uh, that word just represents the reality that um, the earth opened up and created a mass grave for these men and their families. And since their families were actually punished along with them, it probably speaks to the fact that their families went along with this rebellion that they stepped right into it with their, the leaders of their um, family. They did not um, um, stand uh, on the side of God. They stood on the side of despising God. Um, so they were taken up into the grave as well. And the censors that the 250 men um, 
held were now holy because they had been touched by the holy fire of God. So what God does here is direct Moses to send Eleazar, his son, who is a priest, to collect them uh, because only Eleazar can touch them now. Only a priest can touch them now that they are part um, of one of the holy articles of God. And he has them do an interesting thing. He has them hammer these 250 censers into a sheet that is a second covering for the bronze altar and they place this sheet of hammered censers that have been touched by holy fire over the bronze altar as a reminder forever to the people of the nation of Israel that only the priests, only the descendants of Aaron who were chosen by God should ever offer incense before the Lord. Now those of us that are parents in the room know the incredible frustration of dishing out a punishment to one of your um, disobedient children thinking, okay, they're going to get it now. That was pretty harsh. They're not going to want to be grounded or have the car taken away from them. So they're going to listen up and obey now. And before you even finish that thought, you turn around and what are they doing? They're doing it again, aren't they? Uh, it's very frustrating. But that's what we see here at the end of chapter 16. I can't imagine a more dis dramatic display of God's power and wrath than the ground literally opening up and swallowing hundreds of people. Um, I hope that all of us in this room would be walking the line a little better, at least for a few hours, but not the Israelites. Look at verse 41 with me in chapter 16. On the next day, the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. And when the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned towards the tent of the meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of the meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from the midst of this congregation, that I may consume in a moment. They fell on their faces, and Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer, and put fire on it from the altar, and lay incense on it, and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them, for the wrath has gone out from the Lord, and the plague has begun. It's pretty crazy that just 24 hours after God's punishment, again, they're blaming Moses and Aaron for the deaths of these people. Um, they're not recognizing that the death of these men was simply the consequence of their sin, their willingness to despise God Almighty. You know, but if we're honest with ourselves, blaming others is something we all do pretty well, isn't it? We um, blame our bosses or our kids or our husbands for our bad days. We blame our busy schedule for the lack of exercise. I could go on and on of the things we can blame others for. The people of Israel have decided that whatever is wrong in their lives, they're going to lay at the feet of Moses and Aaron. Anything that they can think of is Moses and Aaron's fault. And the reason for that is they forget who their God is. They are never looking um, at God through the lens of El Shaddai. They are simply looking at Moses and Aaron through the lens of an earthly leadership. It is God Almighty that has created these people, who has called them, who protects them, 
We've seen him feed them day in and day out. Their constant blaming and grumbling um, against Moses and Aaron shines a giant spotlight on their ignorance of their very own God and certainly on their lack of faith in him. And God responds to that ignorance and lack of faith because he's given them many opportunities to have a change of heart. He responds with his wrath. And what we see here is that a plague breaks out and spreads through the community of the Israelites and Moses. It's not only a compassionate guy, but he's a, he's a pretty sharp guy and he, as a leader, responds pretty quickly and he has Aaron, who is his high priest, who is um, consecrated by God and who has the ability to atone for the sins of the people. He has Aaron pick up his censer and put fire from the altar in it and incense and run out among the people. And Aaron is fulfilling his duty as the high priest here in atoning for the people and trying to stop the wrath of God. And that's exactly what he does. But God's wrath is appeased, but not before 14,700 Israelites died because they refused to accept that God is in charge of their lives and not Moses and Aaron. Now we can take a couple of great lessons from chapter 16 for our own lives as well. You know, Korah and his followers did an interesting thing here. They took a few of God's words that he had spoken to Moses on Mount Sinai um, early in their journey with God, uh, declaring them to be priests and a holy nation. That was what we read in Exodus 19. They had taken these few words and decided to use them to support their own selfish desires. Um, they'd ignored the other words that God had spoken along the way since then. All the other instructions clearly identifying Aaron and his family as the high priest of Israel and Moses as their leader of the entire nation. This is a great example of something that we see people do every day. We've probably done it ourselves of selectively taking God's word to support our own selfish agenda. Whatever cause we're invested in, then we can flip through the scriptures, find something that we believe supports our opinion or our thought. We need to be careful with that, and we need to do what they should have done, which is use scripture to interpret scripture. Certainly, everything God said in Exodus 19 was true. But everything he said in Exodus 28 and 29 concerning the priesthood was true as well. They forgot to put all those scriptures together and discern the whole truth instead of just a tiny kernel or nugget that spoke to him. Um, we need to be careful with that. Always observing the context of our scriptures. Always using scripture to interpret other scriptures. And always carefully examining our motives when we're taking the scriptures to support something in our own lives that we desire. And along with being careful with the scriptures, we need to be careful with our leaders as well. Those people that God puts in authority over us, we need to respect that umbrella of authority that God, through the scriptures, has given us um, in our churches, don't we? We need to respect our um, authority at our church of our elders and our pastors and our other church leaders. Rebellion against God's chosen leaders 
without appropriate cause, without a sin issue involved, is always rebellion against God himself. So when you step into challenging the authority of one of God's chosen leaders, you need to make sure that you are not in rebellion to God himself. Okay, let's read a little bit more. Let's look at um, chapter 17, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and get from them their staffs, one for each father, one for each father's house, from all the chiefs according to their father's houses, 12 staffs. Write each man's name on his staff, write Aaron's name on the staff of Levi, for there shall be one staff for the head of each father's house. Then you shall deposit them in the tent of the meeting before the testimony where I meet with you. And the staff of this man whom I choose shall sprout. Thus I will make to cease from me the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against you. Um, now, all that has been happening up till now should have been more than enough to prove to the nation of Israel that Aaron is God's choice for the high priest. Uh, only the high priest could have run through the people with his censer of holy fire, atoning for their sin and stopping the plague. Um, they should have picked up on that immediately, but God has, is not taking any chances here. He wants Aaron's priesthood established beyond any doubt for Ever. So he has the head of each tribe bring their staff or rod with their name on it. Now, a staff or a rod signaled uh, was a sign of a man's position as a ruler. In fact, it is from this idea of a tribal staff or rod, which the king's scepter um, in later centuries, we'll see a king sitting on his throne with a scepter that um, speaks of his power, and it originated here from the tribal staff. And, rod. and we see God proclaim Aaron's priesthood when his staff from the house of Levi doesn't just sprout, but it buds and it blossoms and it bears white almonds. It bears this incredible fruit. God's message could not be more clear to the nation of Israel. He's, his almighty power has made a piece of dead wood supernaturally blossom and bear fruit. Um, that same power is also going to rest on Aaron and his priesthood. That's the significance of the buds and the blossoms here. The priesthood of the nation of Israel through Aaron and his family would be fruitful forever because God's power supernaturally rested on it. And to make sure that this divine moment and this divine lesson is not forgotten, God preserves Aaron's staff. Look at verse 10. And the Lord said to Moses, put back the staff of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign for the rebels that you may make an end of their grumblings against me, lest they die. Now the testimony that God mentions here, it describes the Ark of the Covenant inside the Holy of Holies. And the writer of Hebrews actually gives us the contents of the Ark of the Covenant. Look at Hebrews 9 on your verse sheet. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which a golden urn holding the manna Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. So God's plan was to preserve Aaron's staff as a testimony forever of 
God's power and authority. This wasn't as much about Aaron as it was about God and his power and authority. And our lesson um, from chapter 17, when we think about this dead wooden staff, this dead piece of wood, not only sprouting, but budding and blossoming and bearing real fruit, is that we can be looking in our world today for the fruit of God's almighty sovereign power and authority in the world around us as he works through his church, just like he worked through the priesthood of Aaron in Israel's day. You know, instead of grumbling about our world, which I am trying not to do, Um, every day. Uh, I'm trying not to grumble about the world around us. I need to be remembering the message of Aaron's staff. God's power and God's authority in his church today bears fruit, bears fruit. I had a great example of it. Our women's ministry recently hosted a team of five women from um, a great church in El Salvador that we've been working with for several years. These five women were actually at Women in the Word a couple of weeks ago. They have five Five campuses in their little bitty country of El Salvador. Um, And they are involved, these great women are involved in their women's ministry in these five campuses in El Salvador. But guess what? They've also planted churches in Nicaragua, Guatemala, and Colombia. And so what we've done over the last few years is they come here and sometimes we go there And great women, a lot of you that are sitting here today, uh, work with them and share some of our ministries that will translate into their great ministry in South and Central America. Aaron's staff is not just sprouting, it's budding and blossoming and bearing fruit through God's power and his great authority in the church. Never would I have dreamed, or I think any of us that have had the privilege of being involved with this great uh, group of women, would we have dreamed that any of us here in Fort Worth, Texas would be an ongoing influence in Central and South America But God Almighty is in control of all things. And when he is, just like the priesthood of Aaron, his choices bear fruit. His choices bear fruit. Okay, we have time for one more short look at God Almighty in chapter 18. Look at verse 6 with me. And behold, I have taken your brothers to the Levites, your brothers the Levites from among the people of Israel. They are a gift to you, given to the Lord, to do the service of the tent of the meeting. And you and your sons with you shall guard the priesthood for all that concerns the altar and that is within the veil, and you shall serve. I give your priesthood as a gift, and any outsider um, who comes near shall be put to death. These are God's great words to Aaron, his chosen priest. And I think after all the challenges that Aaron has faced, he's got to be discouraged too, just like his brother Moses. So here in this great chapter, God not only reminds him of the responsibilities of the priesthood, but he also shares with him, hey, dude, you've got some pretty good privileges here as well as the priest of the nation of Israel. His priesthood is a gift. It's not a burden, it's a gift. And because of that, he has a relationship with God. God that few other men in history will ever experience. There's only going to be a handful of high priests throughout the history of the nation of Israel, and their relationship with God would be different and unique and special. 
Um, he, God has also given him the great gift of the whole tribe of Levites uh, to serve at his side. They would take care of many of the tabernacle responsibilities except those serving as, as involving the most sacred duties. And in return for their service, both the priests and the Levites would be well provided for by God himself. And this chapter gives, um, lays out what some of those gifts are. The Levites would receive a portion of the offerings that the people would present to the Lord in sacrifice and worship. That would include the wave offerings and the first fruits of Israel's harvest and the monetary valuable tithes that the people would make. The Levites would keep a portion of them and then they themselves would be able to tithe back to the Lord. You know, the other tribes of Israel received land and income from the prosperity of that land, but the Levites would receive their income, their prosperity, their gifts straight from the Lord's coffers as well. This chapter tells us that Aaron and his sons are well provided for by the Lord. They have um, the gift of the office itself. They have the Levites as helpers. They have provision of every earthly need. And they have an intimate and unique relationship with the Lord that few others will ever experience. And I think this chapter should be an encouragement to each one of us because it reminds us of um, our service and what happens when we serve the Lord. You know, oftentimes when we're asked to serve, we're advised to count the cost, aren't we? And that's a wise thing to do, to count the cost in terms of our energy and our time and our resources. Um, but this chapter is a reminder that... Um, all of those time, energy, and resources, where do they come from? They come from the Lord himself, from his coffers, from his coffers. And so our lesson as we consider God Almighty's gifts for the priests and Levites is that um, when we serve him, we can rest in the truth that God Almighty is going to provide everything that we need for our service. He can provide that time that energy, those resources. And, you know, just as Aaron and his sons were given the, the gift of a unique relationship with the Lord, our service offers a unique opportunity uh, to draw near to the Lord as well. Just like Aaron, when we serve, we see the Lord work in ways that we might never experience before. Can you imagine what it was like to be able to go through that veil into the Holy of Holies. Sometimes our service allows us to do that as well. When we serve, we depend on him in places where we might normally depend on ourselves. And when we serve, we use gifts that he has given us that give him the glory. Look at 1 Peter 4.10 on your verse sheet. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever speaks as one who serves by the strength that God supplied, in order that in everything God may be glorified through our Lord Jesus Christ. Just like Aaron, serving God provides a unique opportunity to give God the glory. Theologian J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, which is a favorite of mine, reminds us our thoughts of God are not great enough 
They're not great enough. And these four chapters and numbers give us that same reminder, don't they? I want us to be wiser than the nation of Israel and remember that he is El Shaddai, God Almighty. Look at Isaiah 40 on your verse sheet. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Pray with me. Father, you are gracious and good and kind and merciful. You are more than we can ask for and even imagine. I just ask that you would be um, kind to us and give us a true picture of who you are every single morning, that we would be women that understand the authority you have in our lives, that we would be women that walk in that authority, and we would be women that give you the glory. I pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.